David's going to adjust me down, and I appreciate you guys letting me come on the floor. I, when we have a smaller group, it's, it's a little bit easier to connect with people uh, than being, uh, be kind of being away from them. And so this kind of helps me interact, and I hope it, it helps you. It helps me see you better, too, uh, where I can see who you are a little bit better here. I, I thought about this because I said, well, I should ask, and I didn't ask. And sometimes you can get in quest trouble if you don't ask questions first, hadn't you? <laughs> and uh, part of the transitional interim process is two series that are recommended, and we, I've done them in two other churches. And uh, one is the series on the purposes of the church we're doing on Sunday morning, and then the seven letters to the church. But I want to find out, have you guys done that recently? Has it been a good while the past two or three years? Because I don't want to repeat a study that you've recently done on the seven letters to the... Well, tell you what, we're going to pretend like you didn't teach that this morning. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it is... It is yeah, it is an important, important uh, curriculum. Uh, Richard, are you guys right in first the first chapter right now? The first church. first church. You're in Ephesus. Okay. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> well, for everybody else, I want you to listen real close tonight. Uh, no, back in uh, North American Mission Board. Uh, five years ago started a program called Church Revitalization. The man that's heading that up is named John Mark Clifton. And uh, John Mark is based in Indianapolis. But uh, it's a great, it's a wonderful program uh, for placing pastors in churches that are dying and uh, seeing revitalization. And so this is being a program that's being called across the country, and younger pastors are going into this, uh, but a part of the curriculum is also a book by Richard Blackaby called Flickering Candles, which is based on the seven letters to the seven churches uh, about finding hope for revitalization. And so tonight I'll go ahead and, and begin, and let's pray before we begin. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come tonight and to, uh, to be able to uh, lead this study, lead this message at, uh, at Forest Heights Baptist Church. Uh, open your word to us and may uh, what is said be about our Lord Jesus. And thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know most of you are Bible students and have a thorough background on the book of Revelation, but let me just walk through one more time and give, give us a little bit of a background on Revelation. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John somewhere between 88 to 96 AD. Uh, you say he had to be old. Yes, he did. <laughs> but it's also important to note that he, he had actually written uh, 15 years earlier the, the three epistles to 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John to the church at Jerusalem. What little we know about him was he did face a lot of health issues and attempted martyrdom 
We don't know exactly, you know, legend says the possibility of being boiled in oil. We don't know, but we know that he was placed by the Roman Empire to be isolated on the island of Patmos. And when he was isolated on the island of Patmos, uh, his encounter that he describes in Revelation chapter 1 is an encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. So as you go through and, and look, and of course tonight we're not going to try to touch on the four sections of the book of Revelation. You know the four sections, uh, which are uh, chapters 1 through 3, speaking to the messages to the churches, and then um, chapters 4 through 9, which deal with the events that take place uh, after the tribulation period, and then at the beginning of the tribulation time, and then chapters 10 through uh, 17, that uh, deal what I call the mystical part of Revelation, probably the most uh, challenging part to in-depth interpret, but it helps when we see a road map. When you see a road map of the entire book, it makes sense. And then, of course, the 19th through the 23rd chapter, which are the chapters that describe the consummation of all the ages, everything that will take place in the end, the, the beautiful chapters. Uh, we, we have most of Revelation 19, uh, particularly Revelation 19 through 21, uh, we have it, have it memorized. You know what? <laughs> I've just embarrassed myself, and I do this every time. Uh, and and uh, I've got a I've got a how many year missionary sitting here in front of me, and I'm not sure he 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 caught me on it. He may have, and just been so polite he didn't speak. There are only 22 chapters to <laughs> the Book of Revelation. Uh, they're not a, there's not a 23rd chapter. That's kind of like quoting Hezekiah chapter one. <laughs> The, the, the 19th through the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation describe heaven. So it was written in a revelation that was a dream as in a fulfillment of Joel 2.28, but actually a, a captured vision when the Word of God claims and what we believe, believing this is a part of the canon of the Word of God, that this was a revelation that John got directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he received these words from him. And so if you go through, if you'll look with me, at verse number 8 is where uh, Jesus is speaking to John and identifying himself. Look at verse number 8, John, excuse me, Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, we know that the Alpha and Omega is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's saying, I am the beginning and the end. Everything that exists is in me, uh, says the Lord. Who is, who was, and who is to come, I am the Almighty. A lot of people believe that was an identification uh, by John with uh, the book of Exodus and Moses, what we call uh, the Tetragrammaton. Uh, you say, thank you for impressing us that you went to seminary. <laughs> well, the Tetragrammaton is the name for Yahweh. It's the unmarked vowelings of three consonants in the Hebrew 
that represent the name of God. And so many people believe John was directly tying this to saying, this is the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will be. Uh, and that's what we understand. We really don't know what the word Yahweh means. We guess at it. We really don't understand it. And most of you know that uh, in Orthodox Judaism, when a child is taught to read the Torah, whenever they come to the word Yahweh, it's left blank because it's considered unpronounceable. But what we think it means is, I am the God who was, is, and will be. So he's identifying himself as the one true God. Why is this important? Because the day in which John was writing, people worshipped multiple gods. The audience to which he would write in the seven letters to the seven churches would worship multiple gods. And one of the difficulties they had in the first century church was they would be saved and put the Lord Jesus on the shelf up next to uh, Diana, or which is going to be the, the goddess of the church at Ephesus. And he's saying, there's only one God, and it's the one that's speaking to you. There's not another God. I am that God. So Jesus is identifying himself to him, and then <clears throat> just a few other things, and we'll go in. Verse 10, uh, in, in, uh, that's, that verse 9 deals with who John was. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me as sound as though a trumpet. And then he repeated himself, the voice of Jesus again, as the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, and he told him to write unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And he identifies those seven churches. Now, well, the sound of the trumpet was considered the sound of regal announcement. The head of the government was about to speak. Um, if you've ever been, um, or when a president came in, it gives you chills, doesn't it? You know, even if you don't lie, it's just to hear the announcement of the trumpet. And, uh, and, and to hear that, it's just it's awestruck because he said the sound of the government is coming. And he said, you just stand in awe of it. And uh, then verse 12, he says, I turned and seeing the voice that spoke to me and having turned, he said, I saw the seven golden lampstands in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man clothed in a garment down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band. And of course, the golden band representing the, uh, the purity of the sash and a description of the high priest that we find in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4. And John stood in awe, <laughs> and, and, he, and, he, and he couldn't speak because he was in the presence of greatness. Um, I was asked one time at a gathering to tell the most embarrassing moment in my life, and I will tell it to you tonight because it illustrates being in awe. In 1999, uh, a friend of mine in South Carolina was the 
His brother was deputy campaign director for then Governor George Bush, who was running for president. And so he called me and said, we've got a gathering of about 15 pastors and religious leaders uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, meeting at the uh, Marriott downtown, and, we're, and he, uh, Governor Bush is going to be speaking, and we're going to invite some of you to stay and just talk with Governor Bush and pray with him. Would you have time to come? I said, let me check my calendar. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I went to uh, uh, that meeting. Another friend of ours, Eddie Leopard, the pastor, and he's pastor at Fairview Baptist Church in uh, Greer, South Carolina, and Eddie and I drove that day, and I stayed up all night long, Brother Richard, practicing what I was going to say to the Republican candidate for governor, George W. Bush. So I go into the meeting, and I have a, as you can already know, I have a proclivity to sit around and talk to people and have a good time. So I was doing that, and, uh, and there were people there that I knew or had known growing up, and I stood in all of them, and I was drinking coffee with them and eating a coffee cake, and I was just in a high cotton. And so uh, about that time, I don't know who the guy was, he comes in and makes an announcement. He said, Governor Bush is through the speech, he's getting ready to come in. And uh, so, um, so anyway, everybody gathers, goes to a seat, and I turn around, put my coffee cup down. I turn around, there are no more chairs except one. I go and sit in that chair. I don't know who the guy was, I don't know if he was Secret Service, who it was, but he got up, he said, Pastor, that's Governor Bush's seat. Would you please get up and let him sit there? <laughs> Folks, as fast as I could, I'm getting out of that chair. About that time, this guy with a West Texas accent catches me on the shoulder and pushes me back down. He said, that's all right, preacher, keep your seat right there. It was Governor Bush or President Bush. So I had practiced everything I was going to say. For the next 30 minutes, the most intelligent thing I said was, uh-huh. <laughs> I lost it. <laughs> I lost it. Uh, my friend said, Danny, I thought you were going to talk to him about so-and-so. I said, Eddie, I forgot, buddy. I just, but I stood in awe. I stood in awe of the power. And sometimes that's what John said. He was just amazed that he was in the, he saw the living presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, down in verse number uh, 20 in Revelation 1, he says, the mystery of the seven stands which you saw at the right hand and the heaven golden stands. Now, the seven stars uh, that, that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 are considered the people that are there uh, when, when the word stars is used and the, when, when the lampstand is used, he's talking about the church. So he's giving this address to the seven churches. Who were the seven churches? The seven churches exist in what is called modern-day Turkey or what we know as Turkey. And, uh, and, and they were on a commercial trail that crossed what we call Asia Minor or Turkey going into the uh, eastern part uh, of Asia. And along that trail, the churches that the Apostle Paul had planted existed. And each one of them was strategic. Uh, 
Now, the, the, the churches represented, there's a lot of theory about why these seven churches were there. Some people say they represent each one of a historical period. Uh, some people believe that uh, each church represented uh, an age that would come and happen in the church. Uh, Ephesus, uh, for example, Ephesus represented the apostolic period from up to 230 A.D., Smyrna, the period of martyrdom. Uh, th there's not a lot of evidence for that. But what most people believe is it's a message that speaks to the need of the church for every generation. And that's, what, that's the way I interpret it. In other words, the message that are given to these churches in that day are relevant for the church today. So each one of these messages to each church has a specific message that the Lord Jesus wants to communicate to each church. So he begins first with the church at Ephesus in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now anybody who studied this pastor passage always knows what the word angel means. Anybody know what the word angel, who is the angel? The pastor, there you go, the, the pastor. The pastor is considered the angel uh, in this term that John is using because the word angelos means messenger and he's talking to the primary messenger from each church. So he said to the pastor, he, he was addressing the pastor. Now, I think it's important that we say why does he address the pastor? You know, folks, the Bible says there's one person who will stand accountable for the working in each church. Uh, it's the pastor. It says in, uh, and you know what, I didn't look up the exact text, and I don't want to try to just paraphrase it, but one day we will give an account. Uh, when, whenever you're called to a church, um, I consider what I do as interim, there's a certain amount of call of it is, but as one little boy said, I'm the substitute until the real pastor gets here. <laughs> because when that real pastor gets here, we believe it's not just the vote of a, the work of the pastor search committee is important, and, and that is important. And, you know, we didn't pray today. We need to pray every Sunday for our pastor search committee. My oversight, we, we'll do that before we leave tonight. But also what's working there is that God is calling a pastor here. And so there's a measure of accountability that that pastor has in the work of the church. And uh, we talk about a lot of times in that sense of being released from a call. And so he's saying this word to them as a word of accountability and, and so as you think about it, and I know you already know this, I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, the calling of a pastor is important, it's a gift, and I, I, I've told uh, the churches that I've served in the interim that, that when you call a pastor, it's a, it's a gift that God's given you. Uh, he gives you a gift of a pastor, and, uh, and, and it, it's one he's called to be there to be accountable. Now, the first one church that he writes to, he says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. 
let's just take just a minute to talk about the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a, uh, a port city uh, on the river. Um, oh, gracious, what's the name of the river? I'm sorry here. Uh, 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 I think it's Salera, Salerta. I'll, I'll find it in just a minute. But anyway, it was a port city that had, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Castor. It was by the Castor River. And being there by the Castor River, it was a place where a lot of commercial routes were being shipped in, and so it had been a commercial powerhouse in Asia Minor. For about 500 years, it had thrived commercially. When this letter was written, they had a problem because their harbor had silt deposits that had built up and ships couldn't get in and there had been a waning of commerce in, in Ephesus. Ephesus, secondly, was a religious center. It was the place where the temple to Diana, which Diana was considered the fertility god. Interestingly, if women could not have children, they would make a pilgrimage to Ephesus. Uh, people from Rome would go there in the temple to make offerings to the goddess Diana or under uh, Greek Artemis. And it would be there they would make this offering so they would try to become fertile. Now part of that was that there were also uh, religious prostitution was involved. So the city at certain times of years had thousands of priests to Diana and containing of religious prostitutes. So it was a city that was very, um, uh, had a very debauchous uh, background, but it was also the place where the Lord birthed one of his strongest churches because before this was written 35 years ago, the Apostle Paul spent two years there and preach the gospel. And almost, many people believe there were almost, um, uh, one estimate said between ten to 15,000 believers at Ephesus at this time. Now when, when we say that, we think about a big Baptist church with 10,000 people. That's not the way it was. They were spread out in homes throughout the geographical area and would meet sometimes around the temple. But the gospel had taken there in that area. Um, Ephesus was the place that gave us the letter to, Eph to, to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul loved the, the church at Ephesus. One of the pastors we know was Timothy. So it was a church that was deep and rich. And... I, 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 my wife says don't. Uh, I, I just wrote a thing for Lifeway that will be in the November issue of Mature Living magazine uh, on Jesus the Ultimate Caregiver and the passage I wrote on that struck me so strong and, and this was an article on uh, it was an article on Sherry's dad going into nursing home because we couldn't see him because of COVID restrictions. So we were taken away and removed. 
And the thrust of the article was, who cares for people you love when you can't care for them anymore? When you have to give them up. And the thrust of what I was writing was that when we can't care for people, Jesus is the ultimate caregiver. That he cares for people when we can't care for them. And the passage that I cited was what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus when he said, I, here's my prayer for you. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, he said, I pray that you might be able to comprehend the breadth and the height and the width of the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. He says, I pray you might be able to know how much Jesus loves you. That's, that's what I want for you. And the church at Ephesus, Paul loved, and for good reason. And my time is, David, I'm going to stay within an hour, brother, so we're going to land this plane in 10 minutes, okay? So I want you to see in, in Revelation 2, verse 2, um, what he commended them for. Look at, look at what he said. This, this is a great church. I know your work and your labor and patience, and uh, that you cannot bear much those who are evil. He commended that church for two things. Number one, he says, I know that you're dedicated. You, you are not slackers. You work hard, and you spend time in labor for the Lord. He said that that's an important part. Number two, he... Uh, he, he knew that there didn't practice evil. You cannot bear with those who are evil. That their behavior wasn't guided by the culture around them. They were not worshiping multiple gods. He said, I know that you, um, you are guided by Jesus. You're not person partially worshiping Artemis and living a life that doesn't honor Jesus, you are living Jesus. He says, that's a lot to commend. Folks, that is a lot to commend for people who are not being drugged into the world. And then the other thing he says, if you go through it, um, Look at the end of, of uh, verse number two. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and not, and you found them liars. Now, if you skip on down to verse number six, and, and, and uh, he says, but this I have is that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These people had the opportunity one of the problems that the early church had in the first 40 years was that there were teachers who, who started coming through who preached and were converted to Christ, but they would combine the gospel with other teachers. John had dealt with Gnosticism, which Gnosticism teaches Jesus didn't really die on the cross, he, he was a spirit, and we follow him in spirit, so therefore we can go do anything we want to do in the flesh. And John had confronted this at the church in Jerusalem earlier. The Nicolaitans were the followers of Nic Nicholas the proselyte. 
and the reference for that is Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Nicholas was one of the proselytes in Antioch who converted to Judaism and then, then converted from Judaism to Christianity. He'd become a strong teacher. And so this teaching called Nicolaitism had grown up, which said, essentially close to Gnosticism, you follow Jesus, but then you can go and do whatever you want to do. But you just come back and you repent again, and God gives you a new lease on life, and then you go out and do whatever you want to do. So these false teachers were coming in, and they were drawing people out. In fact, that's what the whole book of 1 John was written about. And he said, what you've done is you've had the ability to test teachers who've come among you to decide whether or not they've really been true to the teaching of Scripture. How do you measure truth? Uh, uh, Danny Aiken, our president of Southeastern Seminary, says there's five ways, and I don't know if I can remember all, I'll try to... Uh, what do you believe about the person of Jesus Christ? How's a person saved? What do you believe about the person of Jesus? Um, his birth, death, and resurrection. Um, what do you believe about the church and, and the function of the church if the church exists? And there are two more, and I, I didn't write them down before I left the house this afternoon, but I'll, I'll get those to you. But we measure it by today... Uh, what we call the 2001 Baptist Faith and Message, that we are orthodox correct. And that's an important word right now because there's a lot of people today who are pushing that envelope. A lot of people pushing that envelope who are saying, well, it's okay to do this, it's okay to do that. Uh, one of the great issues we have again is uh, I, I, I'm no, I'm not going there. <laughs> I'll go there another time. Uh, the issue of what we call complementarianism, which has to do with the fact of what is the role of men and women in the church. Uh, rightly so, people are wanting uh, women to have more visibility within the church, which there's a need to do in the place of witness, but also. There's a lot of pressure now to uh, open up the office of deacon and the office of elder uh, to women. Um, and and uh, there, there's a whole movement going on with that right now. And, uh, and, and <laughs> I tell you what, I, I'm like everybody else. If we didn't have women, we'd close the doors of church. Amen. <laughs> we, we would. But also the Word of God teaches that uh, those officers ordained are for, for, uh, for uh, to be the men. So those are the issues where they stayed true on. He commended them because they maintained their orthodox. They were orthodox in their straight. They were straight in their orthodox. Verse 4. Uh, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So what he is telling them is that even though they have had orthodoxy, they are straight in what they believe, the passion of their faith has gone or is dwindling. 
as one writer said, the church at Ephesus had become a Pharisee church. The underpinning of what they had was orthodoxy, correct belief, but their passion for the Lord was waning. Not gone, but waning. The late Vance Havner said you can be as orthodox in your belief straight as a gun barrel and just as spiritually empty. I, I, I could take a lot of time and talk about that, but I don't think I need to. I think we know from most of our churches that's one of our greatest needs. Our beliefs are correct. But our passion for what we've done before is gone. Verse 4, verse 5, he gives a prescription. Let's go through the threefold prescription for the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. He said, take inventory. Have a time in your life to take inventory. To go back to where the flame of the love went out. Where did it go out? What, what happened? What, what? When did the tears dry up for people who need Jesus? The second part of this prescription is to repent. Now, repentance is a word we're very familiar with and uh, probably the thing that triggers in our mind is walking an aisle, confessing sin, and saying we're sorry. But the word repent, metanoia, means to cease things differently. And what the Lord Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus is to think differently about your sin, to look at it from my perspective, that Religious formalism and legalistic routine cannot be a substitute for a passion for Jesus Christ. Then number three, to do the first works. To do what you did when you first knew Jesus, to go back to that. To remember the things that when your mind and your heart was there, And then he says, that he gives them a warning, unless I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Um, I'm not sure we understand what remove your lampstand means. <laughs> I've heard a lot of theories about it, Brother Richard. Uh, what did your commentator say this morning? Do you remember? That's all right. I'm putting you on the spot. 
Some people believe it's talking about God taking his hand off a church, off the church at Ephesus. I'm not sure that's theologically correct. Some people believe it's talking about that there's a point where we as a body of believers can't turn back. I'm not sure that's correct. But it's a warning. That there, there's a point where I can't bring you back. But then I want you to see he, he almost goes in and, and we, we've got six minutes. Look at verse 7. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I'm not going to take time to talk about paradise of God tonight because we just don't have time. But I want to focus in on verse 17. This is what the Spirit, excuse me, verse 7. This is what the Spirit has to say to the churches, to him who overcomes. That word overcome is a military term. It, it means to persevere or to overcome or to continue with strength beyond measure. He is telling them that if you persevere, if you continue on, then there will come a victory. So there's hope. For the church at Ephesus. There's hope for our churches today. That God can do a work among us. And he is not through with us. But if we remember. If we repent. And if we return. Then he can do a work in their midst. And I believe he can. Uh, he, he is doing it, and, and, and so thankful uh, he is. I'm so thankful uh, he is. Um, if, if I share this illustration, it's not good. Share, tell me when I get home. Wait until I get in the car to tell me, okay? So I, I've served three interims in the past five years. Uh, one of them is way out in the country. You can't, you, they don't have Wi-Fi out there. Clouds Creek Baptist Church. Um, we went there. The church had had a dismissal of a pastor. They were running about 40. We were there two and a half years. Love those people. They called a pastor when I was finishing up the interim, and he was single. And he fell in love with a woman in Dublin, Georgia, and had to resign after three months' service. So I went to talk to the staff at Oconee Heights Baptist Church. They, they asked me to come talk about church revitalization. And I talked about what was going on in church revitalization. And uh, Blake Ivey, our worship pastor, led worship called me and said, Brother Danny, I feel like God's called me to do this. I gave his name to that church. Now, folks, if you talk about a mismatch, you hey, you know Blake. <laughs> a contemporary worship leader 
in an old country church. Folks, last week, they ran out of rocking chairs in the bed baby's nursery. <laughs> they had over eight babies in their nursery. They're post-COVID, they're coming back, they're running 80 to 100. If, all I can say is this, God, two years ago, June, in August of 2019, a good friend, been a good friend since I've been here, Terry Smith called me and said, Brother Danny, they're fighting out at Nicholson Baptist Church. He said, they can't even agree on an interim. <laughs> and said, could you go out and preach for them some? So I went out and preached for a month. Later on, about 15 minutes before I was supposed to preach, Brother Tim, the chairman of the pastor search committee called and said, we want to call you as our interim pastor. <laughs> Hadn't said a word to me. Went in and served. Um, church run about 90, 95. We got back to 125, 130. Shut down during COVID. Uh, went through all the shutdowns. Had to do creative stuff to get through it. Uh, told them I'd stay with them for a year. So September, uh, I told Jay, had told Steve Chairman Deacons, and I said, guys, you know, I need to leave in September. You're moving into reopening. The pastor search committee got busy. They called a local guy who's on a church named Russ Brown. We watch him every Sunday afternoon. Uh, our last Sunday there, we had maybe 100 in worship. They're averaging over 300 in worship. They baptized this morning. Three people had five more joined. They baptized almost 30 people in the past month. They're almost growing too fast. It's dangerous when you grow that fast. It's dangerous because it can lead to conflict. Um, I've never seen that happen. <laughs> so, so, Danny, why are you telling us all that? I believe it can happen here at Forest Heights. You get the right pastor. It may take a while. I mean, Sometimes looking for a pastor, you know this, you hadn't done it in 25 years. So it's hard. And, and it's been tougher with me because I, I run a business. That makes it more difficult. But the opportunity is here for what God can do. That's what I'm trying to say. Did I say that? Susan, did you hear that? I want to make sure you heard it. Persevere. Uh, don't don't give up. Let's stand together. Lord, Lord, we're we're. Sometimes when your spirit comes among us and we sense that we're just, uh, it's almost cliche, but we stand in awe of who you are. And uh, we're just,
we're just amazed at who you are. And Father, we, uh, you, you've called us in this role to uh, help in, in the preparation for what you're going to do. And Father, may the lessons of Ephesus be the lessons for all of us, not just those that are here, but for me also. That, that I can't rely on the orthodoxy of just what I've done before and, and, and just believing correctly. But Father, the, the, the passion that I need for you uh, should be there. And Father, in all of our lives tonight, uh, for many of us, we've served you many, many years. And we've got, we've got war wounds. We've got, we're chewed up from battles. But Father, we stand before you and, and we ask you uh, to return us to our first love. Let our passion for you never wane. Father, I thank you for Forest Heights Baptist Church. I thank you for that pastor that you're preparing right now for this church. And, and Father, I, I pray for your people. Uh, there are people here who love you. They're committed. Many of them go the extra mile. And sometimes it can be discouraging. And I pray by your spirit you'll encourage them. And Father, we thank you that you're still God. As we said this morning, you're in control. So thank you, Father, you're in control. Take this text and apply it to our lives. And tonight may we sleep and rest in you and awake tomorrow ready to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to let Richard lead, Brother Richard lead us in a song, and as he leads us in this closing song, I'll be here if you need me to pray with you, and when we finish singing, that'll be our benediction tonight.